Evidence-Based Radio, still coming at you from quarantine. As always, you can find this and previous shows as a podcast on your favorite podcatcher or via the website evidencebasederrata.com. So we're going to start tonight with another update on the outbreak of monkeypox which will uh, blessedly soon be renamed to something less geographically specific and thus, frankly, a bit racist, Uh, especially as the current outbreak doesn't even seem to be particularly tied to Africa. And anytime something is tied to Africa, it just invites people to be racist and ignorant. And so... uh, especially since monkeypox is just in and of itself erroneous. It's never been found to be um, to be held as a reservoir in monkeys. It's in rodents in Africa of some sort, as we talked about last week. And so I think it's just a really good idea to rename it for uh, clarity's sake and to... Uh, remove any potential of it being really uh, quite easily connected to uh, Africa, since, of course, people think monkeys, they tend to think Africa, uh, which is also obviously not true. Uh, There are plenty of monkeys in other parts of the world, but uh, historic racism runs deep, especially in America. So, As of Tuesday, there were 1,600 confirmed cases and nearly 1,500 suspected cases in 39 countries. 32 of those countries are uh, places where the disease is not endemic, so they're outside of Central uh, Africa. And those include, obviously, the U.S. and Australia. And so... There have no been no deaths outside of African, but in country outside of Africa, but in countries uh, that are that do have endemic cases, there have been seventy two deaths this year. But again, there are no deaths confirmed in any of the other areas where the disease is circulating, though there is an investigation into a death in Brazil. So again, this is a disease that can kill people. It doesn't kill people at nearly the rates of other diseases, uh, certainly not even at the rate of uh, COVID with vaccination. And so it is concerning, but it is not uh, necessarily something we need to be panicking about. Now, the World Health Organization is considering declaring the outbreak a public health emergency of international concern, or FIAC. At least that's how I'm pronouncing it and calling it. Uh, (laughs) This is the highest level of alarm and is identified as an extraordinary event which is determined to constitute a public health risk to the other states through the international spread of disease and to potentially require a coordinated international response. And so this definition uh, applies to a situation that is, quote, serious, sudden, unusual, or unexpected. 
And so other fikes include the, well, current COVID-19 outbreak, the Zika outbreak of 2016, and the 2009 H1N1 influenza pandemic. World Health Organization Director General Dr. Tedros Adhananam Ghebreyes noted that there are three main elements to a FIC. A situation is unusual, it is multinational, and would benefit from collaboration and coordination. I think it's now clear that there is an unusual situation, meaning even the virus is behaving unusually from how it used to behave in the past, Tedros said. But not only that, it's also affecting more and more countries, and we believe that it needs some coordinated response because of the geographic spread. Now, the largest point of concern is the fact that the outbreak seems to be readily spreading from person to person via intimate skin contact. Usually, outbreaks don't spread that easily between humans and peters out rather quickly. Now, Other major issues include the fact that the longer it spreads in places outside of Africa, the more likely it is to become, uh, to be transferred to a rodent population and thus has the potential to become endemic somewhere other than Africa, which means that we would then have another place where the disease could pop up at any time, depending on people's encounters with rodents. The other major issue, uh, which we've obviously previously discussed, is the fact that the symptoms are fairly unusual. Uh, And part of the big problem is that they can often be mistaken for common STIs, like syphilis, chlamydia, or gonorrhea. And so whether or not the WHO declares a fike, The meeting, scheduled for June 23rd, will be useful in order to shed light on any issues that can help us respond even more in a more organized way, Tedros said. And so, yeah, I think it's very important for people to come together and to talk about this because uh, while I continue to be uh, very, very clear that it's not something to panic about at the moment, It is a little bit on the side of if we don't do something now, there is the potential for it to become something that is uh, slightly panic worthy. And so it's important. uh, It's something that we did not do with COVID-19, which is that we did not have a concerted, coordinated attack uh, plan to basically quarantine and... uh, administer vaccinations and really get people who were able to spread the disease into uh, either isolation or uh, give them prophylactics and um, ameliorative care. And so I think that we do want to be really careful about this to make it not something worse. And um, on that note, actually, one thing, some people have been uh, worried that the disease may be spreading via airborne transmission. And so cases right now don't seem to have that as an issue. They continue to present with the classic mode of transmission, which is intimate contact with an infected individual. 
And of course, by intimate contact, I simply mean being in direct contact for a prolonged period of time, not necessarily sexual intimate contact, even though that does seem to be a large factor as the cases continue to be found primarily in men who have sex with men. Um, but once again, this orthopox virus does not seem to be heading toward a pandemic level concern. Uh, right at this particular moment, uh, I think that if we get people together and if the WHO is able to really get the important players to the table and have people work on getting out there and getting better surveillance is a huge thing. We need more capacity for testing and we need to really be uh, getting people to see that some of the things they think are, for instance, STIs are not, that they are actually monkeypox, and we need to have that surveillance out there. And so um, the WHO has already asked doctors to be more careful about uh, looking at and suspecting monkeypox when they see something that looks like it may just be a standard STI. Okay. So obviously this is of concern, but it is not yet a full-blown pandemic. Uh, but again, of course, COVID-19 still continues to be a global pandemic, and there are new variants continuing to develop. And so uh, researchers are getting ready for a potential surge in Europe, of uh, variants of the Omicron, which are better at evading the immune system and therefore are more easily transmittable. And uh, generally, as we have seen throughout the last couple of years, surges in Europe are usually followed by surges in the U.S. And again, they mo most likely won't be as acute as the original Omicron surge, uh, I think partially that was just because people were so surprised by it. They didn't think it would be nearly as bad as it was. And so they really didn't prepare at all. Um, but it still potentially means an upsurge in hospitalizations and potentially deaths, um, though deaths have continued to be on the decline. Now, obviously, my personal advice stays the same. Continue to wear a mask when in indoor public spaces Make sure you are up to date on your boosters. So I believe if you're over 50, you are qualified for a new booster. Um, even though I think that people who want the booster uh, and are under 50 should be able to get it since there's plenty of it for the over 50s who don't want to get it um, because uh, let's be honest, a lot of the anti-vaxxers are in the... Uh, 50 and 60 range. Um, and so not to say that there aren't people in all age ranges that are being scientifically illiterate and refusing to get uh, the life-saving vaccine, but a lot of people are in that demographic. And so I'll take it. <laughs> I will gladly take a booster shot for someone who doesn't want it. Um, but anyways, let's move on now and start talking about things that are completely different. No more infectious diseases for tonight. Hooray. <laughs> I'm really, 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 really sick of talking about COVID-19. And I thought monkeypox would be, you know, something that I could talk about once or twice, and then it would 
be under control. And now that keeps coming around. Um, I'm really, nature is not, is not our friend. And I've known that for a very long time. Um, obviously I have been really worried about infectious diseases when lots of other people weren't. And, you know, it's definitely one of those places where like, I wish that I hadn't been proved right. I would love to go back and not have been proved right. Okay. So again, we are leaving that off for tonight, and we're going to talk about something that is very, very interesting, at least to me. I hope it is to you as well. So we're going to talk about the science of art for a few minutes. Now, I love art. I think art is one of the like coolest things that humans do. And um, I actually really love still life paintings. I'm not sure why. I just find still life paintings, especially those like really lavish and rich, rich ones from the 17th century to be extremely pleasing. Like I love someone being able to capture the spirit of real tangible objects. Like I, I like, okay. Um, <laughs> how to phrase this properly. I appreciate modern art and, you know, I like some of it. Some of it is in pleasing colors and shapes, but I, you know, if you asked me if I would prefer to have a piece of really abstract modern art or a, you know, uh, Dutch master, uh, still life painting, I'm probably going to pick the still life. I just, I like the idea of people being able to capture um, realistic uh, images of nature. And that might be stodgy and old fashioned. But like I said, I understand modern art. I get it. I just don't love it. I really love the the way in which people can capture uh, you know, almost photorealistic things using paint. I think that is so cool. Um, and that's just me. Like the idea that you can paint uh, lace and satin and all sorts of other things and make it look like you're looking at a photograph to me is just, I just find that fantastic. And again, I, I realize that might make me old fashioned and stodgy, but it's just the way I am. Anywho, let's get to the actual science rather than uh, a discussion of uh, opinions about art, which are distinctly non-scientific. <laughs> and so, yeah, it actually is really sad because there are some pigments that have not survived the ages and thus have marred otherwise really beautiful and amazing paintings. And so uh, the one we're going to be talking about tonight is called Still Life with Flowers and a Watch by still life painter Abraham, Abraham Mignot. And it features a lovely vase overflowing with beautifully painted flowers. However, one yellow rose in the center of the composition now looks basically unfinished. You can see the remnants of what would have made it look lifelike, but they're almost completely faded. And so a team of Dutch and Belgian researchers used chemical and optical imaging techniques to examine the painting and to discover the elemental distribution of the various pigments. Published in the journal Science Advances, they were able to infer Mignot's original painting technique 
and explore how the artist would have built up layers in order to create a realistic 3D image of the original yellow rose. Now, the technique actually allowed the researchers to see a version of the rose with those full details from the original painting, which I thought was really cool. Uh, you can see a um, it's in black and white because it's from data, from um, distributions of elements, but you can actually see how it would have looked originally. And I think that's so amazing. And so degradation of pigments is a real problem and has plagued the works of many famous artists, such as blue glass pigment in several works by Rembrandt, as well as darkening of chrome and cadmium yellow in works by Edvard de Munch, Vincent van Gogh, and Pablo Picasso, among, frankly, many others. At an advanced stage, these phenomena can decrease the readability of the artwork and hence significantly alter the artist's intention they wrote. And so examples of this include the loss of red pigment in Van Gogh's The Bedroom. So um, if you're a Van Gogh fan at all, you've probably seen this painting of his bedroom. And in the version we see now, the bedroom walls are purple. I mean, are blue, but they would have originally been purple. And parts of the floor are green, but other parts of the floor would have originally been pink, but now they look brown. And you can also see that in, you can also see the darkening in the, uh, in his heavily yellow paintings, such as his sunflowers. And you can see there, again, the darkening has flattened details. Another example of the degradation of detail is in Rembrandt's paintings, such as his painting of Homer from 1663, where a substitute for ultramarine called smalt was used, but this degraded quickly and has left much of the painting basically a rather flat brown. Now, returning to the work at hand, the yellow rose provides, quote, an exemplary topic for this study, looking flat and poor in color contrast while featuring a crumbling powdery appearance or a significantly broken up paint surface, the authors wrote. Now, the yellow rose was actually a fairly common subject in paintings at the time, and instructions for painting them can be found in a contemporary Dutch painting manual. The Big World Painted Small by Willem Burs, published in 1692 in Amsterdam. Uh, the author's note. Now, the researchers used macroscopic X-ray fluorescence imaging, macroscopic X-ray powder diffraction imaging, and reflectance imaging spectroscopy to map the distribution of elements present in Mignot's painted yellow rose, as well as 3D microscopy of the rose's paint surface. Again, in doing so, they were able to create an image of the rose as it would originally have looked before the overpainting faded. While the arsenic map visualizes the light striking the flower with intricate details and highlights that were meticulously applied to define the flower petals and stamens, the distribution of calcium appears to correlate with the expected shadow areas, the authors wrote. This is particularly visible where one of the upper flower petals cast a shadow on a neighboring petal. And so the calcium suggests Mignot used a 
translucent pigment called yellow lake, which is difficult to detect once it has faded. They concluded that the rose was painted using a three-step method similar to that as described by Burrs. First, the artist would create a monochrome underpainting to block out the position of the object. Then they would layer on details with semi-transparent paints such as glazes for the shadows. Both pigment mixtures that were used for creating either the shadows on the flower or the bright yellow highlights degraded or faded. And while these paint layers were intentionally already thinly applied, conforming to the painting techniques of still-life painters, both have caused an increased visibility of the underlying monochrome yellow ochre paint layer, which is now responsible for the overall color appearance of the rose, the authors concluded. This resulted in a flat, in a flatter, less 3D, looking flower as subtle transition to find the body of the flower can no longer be perceived, which is the reverse optical effect originally intended by Mignot. And it's really sad because the rest of the painting still looks incredibly beautiful. And I mean, the flowers look like you could just pick them right off of the uh, painting and smell them. Some of them are in just such exquisite detail. And this rose was once painted with exquisite details. And it's really a shame that they have faded. Um, And, you know, pigment fading is a huge problem in uh, the world of museums. And so um, even in modern times with uh, artwork that is made in plastics and things like that, so people made uh, artworks using plastics, which were, you know, the in thing uh, in the 50s and 60s and, um, you know, continue into this day. But like, there's a lot of um, conservation work that has to be done around people's ability to preserve these um, items, which have issues that include having pigments and having materials that naturally degrade. And how do you preserve them? Um, it's a whole, you know, field of study in um, the sort of museum and art world. And so I find it all really fascinating and interesting because it's it's definitely one of those uh, Venn diagrams where I am smack in the middle of the confluence between uh, interest in art and interest in science. Um, and so, yeah. Okay. We are going to switch gears now, and we are going to check in with our friend, the Ingenuity Helicopter. Once again, Ingenuity has beaten expectations and was actually able to complete the 29th flight after the NASA team adjusted its software in order to change the accelerometer. And so it took that flight over this weekend and moved closer to Percy so that they can still be in contact, and it's very exciting. Uh, The next big challenge will be, however, surviving the Martian winter. So we already know that uh, Ingenuity is having some issues, and so we're going to have to see what happens. But according to Harvard Grip, Ingenuity Mars helicopter chief pilot at NASA's JPL, 
In its new winter operations paradigm, Ingenuity is effectively shutting down during the night, letting its internal temperature drop to about minus 112 degrees Fahrenheit, and letting the onboard electronics reset. This new way of operating carries with it risks to Ingenuity's electronic components, many of which are not designed to survive the temperatures they are being exposed to at night. Moreover, extreme temperature cycles between daytime and nighttime tend to cause stresses that can result in component failure. But if all goes well, and we know it has been going very well, I wouldn't be surprised if the small craft manages to wake up and get back to being extraordinary uh, once this uh, hard winter time uh, passes. Now, unfortunately, another of NASA's projects on Mars has pretty much uh, come to an end. The InSight lander's solar panels have become covered in a sufficient amount of dust that they can no longer properly produce enough power to continue most of the mission. On May 4th, the lander recorded the biggest earthquake ever detected on Mars, a magnitude 5. This was almost 10 times stronger than the previous la previously largest quake recorded last August. But just two weeks after that, NASA reported that the solar panels are now too covered to continue the mission for much longer. They've gone from producing around 5,000 watt-hours per sol to less than a tenth of that. Now, the mission was actually only supposed to last two years, um, but the InSight lander is well into its fourth year. So it's not exactly a, um, you know, it's not a defeat uh, by any way, in any way, shape or form. And the researchers will continue to listen for it in case a strong wind clears off the panels sometime in the future and it starts to be able to do work again. Um, but regardless of that, it will have given us data to study for years to come even with the partial failure due to the mole not having succeeded in properly setting into the mushroom, into the Martian crust. Martian crust. <laughs> of course, this is always a sad time for those who have worked so closely on the mission. It's really sad. This lander has done everything that we've asked of it and more. It really feels almost like a part of the family, said Bruce Bannert. Insights principal investigator at JPL back in May. I wake up every morning and see what messages it sent us, which data it sent us. I'm not sure what it'll be like when I wake up and there's not anything in my email to tell me about what's going on in Mars. It's going to leave a little hole in my life. Now, that is very tragic and I feel very bad. Um, but again, this was a hugely successful mission. And yes, it's always sad when something comes to an end, and especially for the people who have made it their life for the last almost four years. Um, you know, I think that that is something that we can totally commiserate with. But again, this is was a complete victory. This is not a defeat. It is just a um, unfortunate ending um, because you would like to be able to end a mission on your own terms rather than having to stop because of uh, basically just too much dust. But anyways, um, yeah, 
Okay, we are at the point where we're going to take a break. We're going to do some show promos and some PSAs. And when we come back, we are going to switch from space to the ocean. Um, because as regular listeners will know, I uh, definitely enjoy space, but I really worry that we focus on it too much and neglect the other huge area of exploration that we have currently which is, of course, the world's oceans. Okay, so do come back or do uh, continue to listen and stay tuned. And that is what we will talk about on the other side. Thank you, and you are listening to Evidence-Based Radio. Outbreaks of whooping cough, or pertussis, are happening across the United States. This serious respiratory disease can be deadly for babies. By getting the whooping cough vaccine called Tdap, During the third trimester of each pregnancy, women can pass antibodies to their babies to help protect them until they're old enough to receive their own vaccine. Learn more at cdc.gov slash pertussis slash pregnant. That's pertussis, P-E-R-T-U-S-S-I-S. Table of Contents is a weekly music program that assembles an assortment of songs and sounds of many genres, and which may entail literally taking a random collection of musical sources off the shelf and giving them a turn on the table or spin in a CD or tape player, each week presenting shows which can at times be organized orderly and at other times perhaps be not as much so, yet never dull. Tune in Friday nights, 10 p.m. till midnight on WXOJ LP, Northampton 103.3 FM. There are everyday actions to help prevent the spread of respiratory diseases. Wash your hands. Avoid close contact with people who are sick. Avoid touching your eyes, nose, and mouth. Stay home when you are sick. Cover your cough or sneeze. Clean and disinfect frequently touched objects with household cleaning spray. For more information, visit cdc.gov COVID-19. This message brought to you by the National Association of Broadcasters and this station. Hey, this is Wendy, host of Valley Free Radio's Subculture Music Program, featuring new wave, post-punk, indie, and electronic music from the 70s to today. Join me every Friday night from 8 to 10 p.m. here on WXOJ, or stream it live from your favorite listening device at valleyfreeradio.org. The Forbes Library staff would like to remind you of the incredible resource that you have in your local public library. We have tens of thousands of books for you to check out, music CDs, movies, newspapers from around the region, the state, and the country. We have a wide variety of magazines and free computer and internet access every day. We also have our incredible reference services there to help you answer particularly vexing problems. All of this is free, locally available at 20 West Street in Northampton. So come by and check us out in person or at www.forbeslibrary.org or call 587-1011 for more information. In our polarizing political climate, it's become difficult to find shows willing to discuss, much less listen to, different points of view. Our job is to talk about things we hope you'll find interesting without all the shouting. To disagree without being disagreeable. To provide incisive, factual commentary that cuts through the weekly spin cycle and aims to enlighten, not enrage, our listeners. So tune in for Civil Politics, Friday evenings at 7, here on Valley Free Radio, or anytime at civilpoliticsradio.com. 
Okay, we are back. And as always, you are listening to Evidence-Based Radio. And as I said, I am really interested in exploration of the world's oceans. And so researchers have recently uncovered a secret ecosystem more than 1,600 feet below the surface in Antarctica. An underground river has been found below the Larsen ice shelf and is filled with swarms of tiny shrimp-like creatures. Examining an unusual groove between the ice shelf and land, the researchers discovered a subsurface river. They then drilled down 1,640 feet using a hot water hose to reach an underground chamber, which they then sent a camera down in to see what was going on. They initially saw hundreds of tiny blurry flecks in the water and thought that there was an issue with the equipment. But when they refocused the camera, they realized that they were actually looking at swarms of amphipods. Having all those animals swimming around our camera means there's clearly an important ecosystem process happening there. Craig Stevens, a physical oceanographer at the National Institute of Water and Atmospheric Research in Auckland, New Zealand, said in a statement, The discovery of the secret shrimp-infested structure has the team jumping up and down for joy, Stevens added. While it's long been suspected that there was a network of rivers, lakes, and estuaries under Antarctica, until now they'd been poorly understood. No one was sure if there was ice below the depths. No one was sure about what was below the depths. Um, Of course, there's ice because it's Antarctica. Getting to observe and sample this river was like being the first to enter a hidden world, lead researcher Hua Horgan, a glaciologist at Te Haranga Waka, Victoria University of Wellington in New Zealand, told The Guardian. Horgan first noted the structure in 2020 when examining satellite photographs. Even though the grove was clearly visible, groove was clearly visible from satellite photos, it was actually quite subtle on the ground, but the researchers managed to find a slight slope, which turned out to be the spot. Once they got a camera into the space, they were shocked to find that it was nothing like they'd expected. They had thought the roof would be smooth and flat, but was actually uneven with lots of steep undulations. It was also wider at the top, comparable to a sort of loaf of bread. And they found that instead of one river, there were actually four or five distinct layers of water flowing in opposite directions. This changes our current understanding and models of these environments, Stevens said. We're going to have our work cut out, understanding what this means. The team was also serendipitously in place to record the effects on the area of the record-breaking Tonga Hunga Haapai volcanic eruption in Tonga. Pressure waves from the eruption had caused the Earth's atmosphere to actually ring like a bell, and sensors on the ice showed a similar pressure wave moving through the underwater cavern. 
seeing the effect of the Tongan volcano, which erupted thousands of kilometers away, was quite remarkable, Stephen said. It is a reminder about just how connected our whole planet is. Now, of course, as with most environments, especially in the Antarctic and Arctic regions, time may be short to study this area before it begins to be affected by climate change. And so, yeah, this is definitely something where it's like, oh, we found this amazing thing and it's in a place that's falling apart. Hooray! (laughs) But it's still really awesome and amazing and hopefully they'll be able to do some good work there now um, before things really start to get dodgier than they already are. Um, Because in case you hadn't noticed, uh, Antarctica is very much melting and the Arctic is also very much melting. And um, if you don't believe in climate, anthropomorphic climate change, A, I'm not sure why you're listening to this show, but please continue to because hopefully I can change your mind. Um, But uh, otherwise, yeah, it's... So we're actually going to talk about a potential helpful thing next, um, because of course everything about climate change is an existential horror um, when you don't have good solutions. And so let's talk about a possible solution, um, obviously a part of a solution, not the solution, um, something that could help out with some aspects because there is no one uh, particular answer to uh, global warming. We need to do several things. And so one of the ways that we could help stave off the worst effects of climate change would be to would be the development of next generation renewable energy technologies. Because of course, we really need to stop relying on um, oil and gas. Um, And that includes natural gas because, uh, I forget what his name is. Was it T-Bone Pickens or something like that? Who said, oh, gas is great. Um, Yeah, that's a lie. Gas is not not great. Um, Natural gas is a bad uh, step. It is not helping. Anywho, let's talk about something that could help. Again, researchers at MIT have built a highly efficient thermophotovoltaic cell that when paired with renewable resources, efficiently converts incoming photons into electricity. The problem is you don't get renewable energy when you want it. Essegun Henry, mechanical engineer at MIT and author of the new study explained in a video call to Gizmodo. You only get it when the weather is favorable, when the sun is out or the wind is blowing. The solution can be the ability to store the energy from such renewables in what are called thermal batteries, where the energy is stored as heat. Conventional lithium-ion batteries are just not up to the task for storing the energy produced by renewables. Lithium-ion batteries are unfortunately too expensive, and there have been a number of studies that have looked at how cheap the storage has to be in order for us to have a fully renewable grid, Henry explained. So that's where we developed this technology, thermal batteries, because storing energy as heat, rather than storing it electrochemically, is 10 to 100 times cheaper. 
The thermophotovoltaic cell relies on semiconductor phys physics. The atoms within a semiconductor's alloys have band gaps. These are the distance between the valence shell of electrons and the conduction band. The valence shell is the out outermost electron orbit of an atom that electrons actually occupy. The conduction band is the band where electrons move when an atom is excited. In a conductor, there is no gap. In semiconductors, there's a small gap. And in insulators, there is a large gap. When electrons jump from the valence shell to the conduction band, energy is released. The amount of energy released is controlled by the size of the band gap. The electrons in the, photo, in the thermophotovoltaic cell are located within its alloys, which are in layers like a cake. The cell is made of two layers of the semiconductor alloys and one layer of reflective gold. The alloys were, cho were chosen according to the wavelength of the photons required to fuel the cell at the highest efficiency. Should you want to absorb light at a particular frequency, you can figure out which alloys will give you the right band gaps that you want, said Henry. And so the first layer has the largest band gap in order to capture the highest energy photons. Photons not captured in the first layer then fall through to the second layer and push electrons across a smaller gap. If a photon doesn't have the energy to push an electron through either gap, it's reflected back into the light source by the gold reflective layer in order to reduce waste. The researchers obtained the photons for the experiment from a superheated metal located directly above the heat engine. We were sending electricity to a resistive heater that was a few feet away, Henry explained. Think of it as a fancy light bulb filament, basically. They found that the best efficiency was reached when the filament or the resistive heater, was heated to between 3,452 and 4,352 degrees Fahrenheit. In the real world, they would store the heat in batteries, which could then be accessed with, with the heat engines. To store energy as heat, a renewable energy source like a solar panel or a nuclear power plant would power the resistive heaters that heat up liquid metal, which would then be pumped over blocks of graphite to create a sort of sun in a box with temperatures as much as half that as the actual sun. They would then power the resistive heaters and send photons to the heat engines, which would be stored on top of one another in a large array. Now, this may, sign, may all sound a bit science fiction-y, but Henry thinks that it's a model with real potential. They've already demonstrated that it's possible to, li to pump liquid metal to above 1,832 degrees Fahrenheit. He notes that a big issue, however, would be that the area would need to be oxygen-free. This thing is going to be held inside of a warehouse filled with inert gas, like argon gas, Henry explained. That environment doesn't have air, so you can't just walk in there. Ideally, the system would be designed with remote maintenance in mind, but still allow for regular inspections and fixes. We would want to go and take a look during annual maintenance, and so you just cool the system down, or cool a portion of it down and send someone in, Henry told, uh, the, told Gizmodo. If you had some emergency, 
you could cool the system down and send someone in with essentially scuba gear and an oxygen tank. Currently, the system runs at 40% efficiency, but that's actually comparable to steam turbines, which we actively use. Their next goal is to create a warehouse-sized power station that could be patched into an existing grid. So that is pretty exciting. I think that um, one of the big things that we really do need to work on is that we need to work on figuring out better ways to use renewables because once again, uh, let's be honest, fossil fuels are literally killing us. And um, I just don't know how we can't figure that out. Um, well, yes, I do. Of course I do. Um, because people don't want to because they're invested in it. And we live in a capitalist society that doesn't believe in the future pretty much at all. Um, and that's a human trait, obviously. Uh, so scientifically, humans in general are bad at a lot of things. We're bad at large numbers, which is a real problem. We're bad at uh, planning for the future, which is a big problem. Um, humans are just bad at this. Uh, <laughs> and unfortunately, we're really bad at those things and we're really good at other things like designing cars and designing rockets, which uh, in case you didn't know, rockets are actually bad for the environment too. Hooray! Um, there's actually a real concern because there's all of these new um, you know, private entity uh, space programs where uh, black carbon gets into the atmosphere and is actually uh, can heat the middle layer of the atmosphere and can also uh, be destructive to the ozone layer. So uh, another reason to be more interested in exploring the ocean than space, because exploring space is actually potentially going to make Earth worse. Um, <laughs> ah, it seems very dystopian, and I feel bad. I'm very sorry for being uh, so dystopian about this, but it really is um, a worry. I think that we have to be really serious about thinking these things. And, you know, I'm no angel. I, you know, drive two hours every weekend um, to see my partner uh, and so, um, you know, I'm not saying that I have the solutions. I'm not saying I am the solution. I just think that it's important that we keep trying to, uh, to incentivize people like these amazing, uh, researchers at MIT to create these solutions. And then we should actually fund them and actually, uh, work on this instead of continuing to just, um, you know, dig our head into the sand and say, oil is fine. Nothing's wrong. You know, insert deity here is in control of climate and humans can't do anything. Um, that's the most upsetting one to me simply because it's so hard to argue against. Um, obviously people believe what you want to believe about, um, life, the universe, and everything. Um, but that to me is a really hard one. And I struggle with that one because what do you tell someone who is convinced that only their God um, or gods can affect 
uh, the climate. That one's a hard one. Anyways, let's 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 move on. Let's let's not talk about um, <laughs> dystopian uh, climate change any longer for the night. Let's actually move to something that's completely already happened. So can't do anything about it. <laughs> let's talk about a really remarkable dinosaur uh, fossil instead. Um, Completely different natural disaster. Whee! <laughs> uh, and so um, this is a really exciting discovery. It's from a, um, a paper has been published in the journal NBC Biology, and it describes the first ever discovery of an umbilical cord scar on a well-preserved Cytosaurus fossil from China. Now, the fossil also shows a cloaca and countershading camouflage, which was kind of the, that was the lead discovery, was that amazing camouflage. Now, this isn't a belly button that was attached to an umbilical cord in the way that humans and other mammals have, but rather the connection of the embryo's abdomen to a yolk sac and other membranes within an egg, like modern-day birds or reptiles. The scar occurs shortly before or during hatching as the animal detaches from those membranes. Now, Cytosaurus was an early bipedal beaked herbivore, an early form of ceratopsians, which would later include triceratops, um, you know, childhood favorite. <laughs> and so the 130 million year old fossil is wonderfully preserved. It was found lying on its back, complete with skin and tail bristles. It's been known since 2002, but continues to give researchers new insight into these amazing creatures. Michael Pittman, assistant professor at the Chinese University of Hong Kong, and co-author Thomas G. Kane from the Foundation for Scientific Advancement, traveled to Germany in 2016 to examine the fossil at the Seckenberg Research Institute and Natural History Museum in Frankfurt. The two used laser-stimulated fluorescence, or LSF, to reveal otherwise invis invisible features in a non-invasive way, which is really important because this is a very, very important uh, specimen. The LSF allowed them to see the subtle scar as well as to see the patterns, wrinkles, and scarring of the skin in high relief. The team asked Phil Bell, dinosaur paleontologist at the Paleoscience Research Center at the University of New England in Australia, to help with examining the skin. LSF brings out the detail in spectacular fashion, Bell said. It really looks as though the animal could get up and walk away. You can see every little wrinkle and bump in the skin. It looks so fresh. Imagining these animals as living, breathing entities rather than dead, just dead skeletons is what fascinates me. Bringing them to life is one of the major goals of my work. And so the team did find wrinkled skin, but not on the abdomen where the scar was located. They note that healed injuries would show a distinct break in the scale pattern with smooth granulation tissue over the healed area. Instead, Pittman notes, 
The umbilical scales have regular sizes, smooth margins, and are arranged along the midline of Cytosaurus. This suggests that the scar was not a result of an injury. Now, again, because the specimen is so precious, instead of cutting into a bone to determine the age, the researchers instead compared the length of its femur to other Cytosaurus specimens and determined that the specimen was probably around six or seven uh, years old when it died um, and was probably just about to enter sexual maturity. Now, not all modern birds and reptiles keep their umbilical scar into adulthood, though the American alligator is apparently a notable exception. And some scarring is the result of an infection in the yolk sac. So it's possible not all dinosaurs or even all Cytosaurus retained their scar. Now, again, it was while researching the animal's camouflage that they even discovered the scar. When searching through the reams of data they'd collected in 2016, they found this interesting pattern. This led to a paper that year on an observed countershading camouflage pattern, the first identified in a dinosaur. We planned to analyze the LSF data further because our images provided so much extra information about the skin. We are currently finalizing a detailed description of the skin of Cytosaurus, he added. This required us to look at every square inch of the fossil. And so, again, Bell is an expert in fossil skin and notes that there is still a lot that we don't know about it. And a lot of people are actually even surprised to this day that uh, preserved dinosaur skin exists. Um, I mean, frankly, I was amazed when they found that amazing, um, uh, there was an amazing preserved uh, fossil of sort of a, um, it was a dinosaur more like an Ankylosaurus. It was one of the kind of armored dinosaurs and it looked like it was an actual sculpture. It looked like someone had envisioned what such a dinosaur would look like and then had sculpted it sculpted it out of rock so you could see all of the skin and all of the you know extrusions of horn and it was just I remember the first time I saw that I was just like absolutely blown away and um, I think that because those specimens are rare there are still a lot of people who, you know, you think you went into museums as a kid and when you think dinosaurs, all you ever saw was bones. And so definitely bones are still the thing that most people think about. Um, but Bell reminds uh, people that skin is the largest organ of the body and that scales protect modern reptiles from dehydration and UV rays. And um, he's kind of team scale. So he says, you know, feathers are exciting, uh, but they shouldn't be considered more exciting than preserved scaled flesh, um, which is what Cytosauruses would have had. It's an absolutely stunning specimen, Bell remarked, of the Cytosaurus fossil. And the fact that it's still yielding surprises 20 years from the time it was first announced to the public is extraordinary. And that's because of the development of these new imaging techniques. And actually, uh, this team 
was the first, Pittman and Kane were the first people to actually use laser-stimulated fluorescence on a dinosaur skeleton. So this is like real cutting-edge stuff. And so it is very, very cool to see that. Now, of course, even though this is a very cool uh, story, um, unfortunately, I do. There is a bit of controversy about this specimen um, that we should talk about just because we've been talking about it for a while now. And so um, it was actually sold to a private collector who then, uh, you know, sold it to uh, another private collector. So it traded in private hands for several times before reaching the um, Senekenberg um or the Senkenberg uh, Museum. And so there's a little bit of controversy because, of course, it's originally from China. And so the authors do weigh in at the end of their paper on that controversy. And they note that there is ongoing debate regarding the legal ownership of this specimen and efforts to repatriate it to China have not been successful. Our international team of Australian, Belgian, British, Chinese and American members all hope for and support an amicable solution to this ongoing debate. We think it is important to note that the specimen was acquired by the Senkenberg Museum to prevent its sale into private hands and to ensure its availability for scientific study. So, yeah, I mean, I think that's very important, but, um, you know, this is all very tricky. And um, it's amazing that they're able to study it, but there is, you know, good reason to suggest it should go back to China. All right. That is all the time we have for tonight. And um, I will be back next week and maybe we'll, maybe I'll try to find some uh, just plain old fun stories for next week because there was a lot of uh, downers tonight and I apologize for that because I do try and keep this as light as possible. Um, just because there's so much dark out there. I hope you have a great week. Good night. Evidence-Based Radio is a member of the Planetside Podcast Network. To learn more, go to planetsidepodcasts.com. The theme song is Widgen by Bird Boy. Purchase the full song at smarturl.it slash birdboy.